This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Gotham Center podcast and New Books Network. My name is Bruce Corey, your host, and today we'll be talking to Robert W. Snyder, who, with Frederick Binder and David Reimers, is co-author of All the Nations Under Heaven, Immigrants, Migrants, and the Making of New York, which is, I think, a very fast-paced, readable uh, one volume that covers 500 years of New York history from Dutch colonial times up to the present day, very briskly. Robert Snyder, welcome. Thanks. And I wonder if you'd like to begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. I'm a historian with a special interest in the history of New York City. I've written books on different aspects of New York, its popular culture, its neighborhoods, artists who've depicted the city. And Most relevant to this book, I was Dave Reimer's teaching assistant in Mm -hmm. graduate school in 1979. I was his TA in a course on immigration history, and I've been friends with him ever since, and I was glad to be invited in to write a revised version of All the Nations Under Heaven. Well, as you you mentioned, this is a new edition of a book that was, I gather, first published in the mid-90s, and Reimer's invited you in, and uh, I mean, other than your experience as I'm sure you were a very fine teaching assistant. Uh, <laughs> what other writing have you done uh, concerning immigration in New York? I did two books that I think were relevant. One was a book, An Oral History of Transit Workers, and there are a large number of immigrants in the transit workforce over the decades. The second thing that's relevant is I did a book called Crossing Broadway, Washington Heights and the Promise of New York. And that looked at one neighborhood in upper Manhattan as a prism through which you could chart the changes in New York City in the 20th century from the 1920s down to the recent past. And that Washington Heights is a neighborhood that went from being strongly Irish, Jewish, and Greek to one that became the largest Dominican neighborhood in the United States of America. And Dominicans are today the largest single immigrant group in New York City. And I think the package that I brought to the book helped us bring all the nations under heaven down into the recent past. Well, that's that uh, leads exactly to what I was thinking, which is, you know, in addition to bringing the story of immigration and migrants to New York forward to the present time from the 90s, did you make other revisions to the book that uh, you uh, that that Reimers and and Binder wrote? And if so, what did you change, how, and why? 
We were very interested in making the latest edition of the book speak to some of the really pressing questions of our time. One is economic inequality, which as we as we get further and further into the 21st century has become a bigger issue in New York City. The other is the endurance of racism, which is an old theme in New York City that goes back a long way. And although its impact shifts and varies in the decades, it never, ever goes away. And we wanted to make sure the book addressed those two things above all else. We also thought that we would revise some aspects of the book and add new material. In particular, we added a whole new chapter on New York City in the Gilded Age. We covered roughly the years from the end of the Civil War down to the 1880s for two reasons. One is that in those years, New York City had a kind of rough peace uh, under the political direction of Tammany Hall. It's a less violent period than you would expect in many ways, given all the inequalities in the city. At the same time, there's a growth in great wealth in America in that time. And there's a movement that springs up in opposition to monopoly and great wealth through the Henry George campaign in New York City. In his run for the mayoralty, he advanced a vision of New York City that would be reformed and made more congenial to producers and working people. And we thought it was useful to show how immigrants have not only built up some of the wealth in New York City, but also at times advocated for ways to make it more democratically distributed. Right. Well, I mean, that's because, you know, there have been many, many, many um, people who have pointed out the parallels between uh, the present era and the Gilded Age and the and the progressive era that followed it. And was that part of your thinking, too, was to tease out some of the bring that those ideas more to the fore for that reason? Yeah, New York City has a fascinating duality to it. On one hand, it's a capital of capitalism. It's a city of extraordinary wealth, but it's also a capital of immigration and a capital city for people experimenting with political alternatives to the standard system. Progressives, socialists in the early 20th century, New Dealers in the LaGuardia years of the 1930s and 1940s, and in more recent times, movements like Occupy Wall Street Mm -hmm. have all sought different ways to make New York City more hospitable to its majority. Right. Well, let's go back to that Gilded Age period, because in the preface to your book, and again at at the conclusion, you evoke the memory and the work of Jacob Rees. Yeah. Yeah. Who was very active during that time. He was a great muckraking journalist, for those who may not know this, great mucking, muckraking journalist of that period, who uh, in words and, and especially in photographs, uh, told the story of what he said called How the Other Half Lives, which back then that meant the European immigrants to uh, New York City who were primarily living in teeming, squalid conditions on the Lower East Side. In modern-day New York, if there were a modern-day Jacob Rees who wanted to tell the story of how the other half lives, and the immigrant population in the city now is about the same proportion of the population as it was back then, where would that Jacob Rees go to tell that story? You know, if Jacob Rees would come back today, he probably wouldn't go to the Lower East Side because the Lower East Side has changed so dramatically. 
in researching the book, I deliberately went to some of the sites that Reese wrote about when he wrote How the Other Half Lives. And in one, there's a there's a huge luxury building with some affordable housing in it going up on a place where Jacob Reese found sweatshops. But if Reese were to come back today and ask how the other half lives, he would probably go to Queens. He would go to one of the neighborhoods like Corona or Jackson Heights that are really the epicenter of immigration in New York City today. Queens and Manhattan are where the big bulk of New York City's immigrants live. And the immigrants there often live in very crowded housing of a kind that's so jammed that it recalls what Jacob Reese found, two, three generations in Mm -hmm. one apartment. I know it's kind of outside the scope of the five boroughs too, but um, hasn't also one of the real trends in the greater New York metropolitan area in the last 20, 30 years been how many more immigrants are you find living in suburban New Jersey or Long Island or Westchester County? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the trends of our era is that immigrants are moving into inner suburbs older cities in northern New Jersey, in parts of Long Island, parts of Connecticut. New York City may be where people land at Kennedy Airport. People no longer come by ship, obviously. People may land in New York City, but they often move on to the suburbs, and it's increased the diversification of the suburbs at the same time. And what do you think? Is it a, is it a push-pull? I mean, is it the... Um just that real estate and rents have become so expensive in the city that it's easier to find places to live outside the city? Or is it, hey, we really like that backyard barbecue? That a, is, Go ahead. No, it's a good point. There are a couple of things going on. There's the rising cost of housing in the city. There's the fact that in the older suburbs and cities of New Jersey, for example, which I know really well, people now can find established communities of Portuguese immigrants, Brazilian immigrants, Ecuadorian immigrants, Honduran immigrants, people from India, people from Pakistan. And those communities on the periphery of New York City, but very much in the consciousness of immigrants, become attractive to people because they'll find friends and family there. And they'll also find more affordable rents than they'll find in New York City. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, let's go back to what you were saying about Reese and, you know, the housing that he found and the multi-generation families packed together. And, you know, really there were population densities that are comparable to modern day Calcutta on the Lower East Side in those days. A big part of this, of what he was bringing out was the overcrowded, unsanitary tenements that people were living in that made immigrants susceptible to outbreaks of tuberculosis and cholera and other really serious communicable diseases. Now, fast forward to New York today, where the pandemic era New York, what would a modern Jacob Reese find, do you think? What troubles me, and it troubles me very deeply, is that in the inequalities 
and the crowded housing that we see in some immigrant neighborhoods today, we see a dangerous susceptibility to the pandemic. People are living packed into apartments tightly, so they become more affordable. They put two or three generations into one apartment. Everybody works. Mm-hmm. That way they can pay the rent. But that means that diseases spread more easily. You also have a lot of immigrants packed into occupations that increase their contact with other people, working in transit, working delivering groceries, working behind counters and stores. And that puts them in very, very vulnerable positions. And if you look at a map of infection rates in New York City and you look at a map of frontline workers and you look at a map of immigrants, you often find that those three maps overlap. And that's really, really troubling to me because right. it's, it's a matter of, of justice. It's a matter of public health. And one thing I'd say, I think immigrant labor really pulled New York City out of its doldrums in the late 20th and early 21st century. And that's an important achievement. But I would hate to see the pandemic become the final punctuation mark on that. That's not the proper endpoint for that story. And I mean, I think that one of obviously one feature of the federal relief acts that have been passed, which have, you know, everyone has remarked, you know, have has has uh, prevented a disastrous economic situation from becoming vastly worse in the last year. However, many taxpaying immigrant workers have been ineligible for the benefits that Congress has approved. And that's included even in the rescue plan too, isn't it? Yeah, it's really a complex equation because between documented and undocumented workers and people who are on the books and off the books, there are tremendous needs that are met imperfectly. I can think of people I know who are social workers who work in Manhattan and work really hard trying to find ways to get money to immigrant families that are suffering. Uh, Even with the aid that we have, it can be hard to match the needs and the resources that are available. You know, you and and your co-authors in the preface of your book, you say that in the New Deal LaGuardia era, a popular image of New York as a liberal tolerant city really developed and took off. And it's certainly an image that a lot of New Yorkers like to put forward about their city too. And, um, but isn't there, isn't there a, a, a slightly over sentimentalized picture, part of that picture? I mean, especially when it comes to immigration, you know, there's the, the popular idea of the Statue of Liberty lifting its lamp beside the golden door and the huddled masses coming to breathe free and the melting pot, all of which is true, but it's not the whole story, is it? No, no. And and it's not the whole story in two ways. One is immigrants since the middle of the 19th century have had to fight their way into the political system. This is clear with the arrival of the Irish, the arrival of Irish immigrants fleeing the famine and English rule in Ireland in the middle of the 19th century brought to the country of the United States and New York in particular, massive numbers of people who were poor, immigrant, and Catholic. And the native Protestants in New York City roundly rejected them. The Irish had to fight their way into the political system. And in in doing that, 
they made the city's politics and culture more open than it would have been otherwise. But Italian and Jewish immigrants faced the same thing. African-American and Puerto Rican migrants from within the United States as people of color faced the same challenges when they came to New York City in the years right before and after World War II. So the idea that, that New York City was born tolerant, I think, is, is, is misleading at best. I think that generations of immigrants, generations of migrants have made the city more tolerant, made it more inclusive. At the same time, I think, again, for a lot of people of African descent, for a lot of Latinos, New York City remains a city whose full promises have yet to be delivered. Right. And I actually, going back to the 19th century, one of the points that is in your book that if I knew it, I'd forgotten it, which is that before the Civil War, New York elected a mayor who was a member of the Know Nothing Party. Yeah, no, nativism was a strong element in New York City. And, you know, street battles between Irish Catholics and native-born Protestants were a feature of the city's life. And we forget those years at our peril. I think that the the inclusiveness that we prize in New York City has to be won in every generation. It's not a permanent victory that delivers for all time. Imagine that you were writing the next chapter. <laughs> of all the nations under heaven, and that it included the year that we've all just been through with the pandemic, the terrible recession and economic suffering so many people have experienced, the deep moment of racial reckoning that emerged following the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and that really upended the city for months on end. What questions would you be asking as you started your research on this new chapter? And it's a two-part question. What questions would you be asking? And what links do you think you'd find to New York's past? It's a great question. I would, I would obviously look to the year we've just been through and ask, what is the full context for understanding the pandemic? How did existing conditions on the ground, in residence, and in work, shape people's vulnerability to the pandemic. Equally, I'd ask what conditions that were on the ground in New York City made people rise in the Black Lives Matter movement that was a, a characteristic of last summer in New York City. I'd, I'd be looking at all of those, asking fairly open questions. As to links with the past, one thing I definitely want to explore was what kind of difference did it make that New York City had a well-developed public health infrastructure? Mm -hmm. Because this is something that goes back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We know that settlement houses that did heroic work in the flu pandemic of 1918 are still doing heroic work in the pandemic that we face today. How did they make a difference or not make a difference in helping people through this difficult time? I'd also want to look at the political vision that that dominated New York City a bit over 100 years ago and a bit today. The New Yorkers who lived through the flu pandemic of 1918 were living through the progressive era, a, a great era of urban reform. They brought to that time period 
you know, the memories of the populist movement and the progressive reformers of the early 20th century. In New York City, our inheritance has been a bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. I think the city's politics in recent decades has more often than not been more conservative than, than it used to be. And how did that shape our response to the pandemic? I'd, I'd be looking, I think, at a very wide range of questions from how people lived on the ground to how they worked to how mayoral and governmental leadership in Albany combined to shape the city's response to the pandemic. One thing that became really clear to me writing this book and the revision of this book, really, was that New York City is embedded in a state, in a nation, and even in a world economy. And as big and powerful as New York City can appear, there are global forces that can knock it down. There are national trends that can shake it. New York doesn't go forward by itself. It's buffeted by currents that are quite large. And I think the pandemic is a great example of that. Well, I think I think you're you're quite right about that. I mean, just starting with the fact that you mentioned uh, you mentioned at globalization as one of the themes that you wanted to tease out in this new edition. And clearly, we all all of us in New York a year ago knew pretty well that once the virus went global, it was going to come to New York for obvious reasons. We are a global city with three airports, with international flights, it was sort of inevitable that it was going to come here and it was going to, probably going to come here first. That's absolutely true. My, you know, my wife has a lot of friends who live in Italy and she would talk to them and watch the news for Italy and think while she listened to them and watched what was happening there, well, in two weeks, that's going to be us. And, and that, I think, was for her a degree of a warning sign. The other piece of globalization that 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 fascinates me is, is that you know New York City used to be a great center of industry. It used to be a seaport. The manufacturing is a shadow of what it once was. The harbor has moved to the Jersey side of the harbor, but New York City, with its service economy, still requires lots of face-to-face labor. People talk about a postmodern economy where bits and bytes swirl around the world and electric messages. That's true, but in New York City, a lot of the work that gets done is work done by people in the presence of other people, and that makes those workers vulnerable in the pandemic, and I think it's a big factor in understanding how we went through this experience. Right, right, and and to coin a phrase, I mean, we can think globally and act locally, uh, <laughs> uh, on, because to me, another striking feature of what has happened in New York in the past year, both in response to the pandemic and the recession, and also in the Black Lives Matter movement, of, is the upswelling of grassroots activity, uh, both of political activity, but also of, of um, networks, community networks, helping people with food banks and other forms of assistance has been really a re- remarkable. And are there parallels in New, York, in New York's past to that? Or is this a, a, a new phenomenon that we're seeing? No, I mean, I think, I think New York has always been a city of activism. The causes and the, and the, and the, and the organizations may change and evolve, but this is a city with a long activist tradition, right? 
So just as settlement houses exist today that were formed back more than 100 years ago during the progressive era, you get housing organizations today like the Metropolitan Council that date to earlier decades in the 20th century. You get organizations founded to serve Dominican immigrants when they first arrived in northern Manhattan, still working today in the neighborhood, even though the immigrant generation is getting older and older. So I think that New York City has a dense network of associations. It also has a long tradition of protest. I think that in recent decades, particularly in the Giuliani years, protest you know, went from being something that was an accepted part of the city to something that was tolerated at best and controlled. But we saw lots of demonstrations in the past summer that suggest that the spirit of marching in the streets is still alive for a lot of people. So uh, probably the next chapter of All the Nations Under Heaven is not something you're working on, but can you tell us what you are working on and what your next project, what you're thinking of for your next project? Sure. I'm working on a book about the journalist Murray Kempton, who came to New York City just before World War II and then thrived as a columnist at the New York Post and then Newsday in the years from roughly 1950 to the 1990s. He was a great columnist who was also a reporter. He went out and found things that were happening in courtrooms, on street corners, in political demonstrations, and he wrote them up with an extraordinary prose style. Murray started out in the 1930s, and that decade always shaped him. He was, by turns, a member of the Young Communists League, and then he was a young socialist. And although his politics evolved in decades to follow that, in some ways he always tried to keep faith with some of the best ideals of his youth, even though he abandoned some of the ideological commitments that he had when he was a young man. He's a great individual for charting the changes in New York City from the 1940s to the 1990s and the changes in the United States from the 1940s to the 1990s. Rob, I think it's probably going to be a great book. Um, I wish you every success with it. We'll look forward to reading it. And at that, I'm going to say thank you, Rob Snyder, co-author of All the Nations Under Heaven, on behalf of the Gotham Center at CUNY and the Net New Books Network. Thank you.